Thank you, James. And uh, yeah, I just want to reiterate what Rev just shared with us, encouraged us with. Christianity is not a solo pursuit. In fact, when we try to go at it alone, we become sitting ducks to the enemy. We need one another. We need each other. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't signed up already, sign up. So that in the context of loving community, Christ-centered relationships, we can pursue Christ together. I was just informed by Pastor Ray that um, this is Gina's last Sunday with us. And um, why? Because she's leaving us for some dude. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, that's, it's the truth. It's, no, she's getting married. She's getting married to a, a guy, and they're going to live in Korea for a couple of years, right? Gina, two years? Two years. We're holding you, too. You better be back, or we're going to go and bring you back. But thank you for everything that you have done for us and all that you have been. And that uh, we love you, and we're going to miss you. And God's best to you and your husband, your future husband. Well, good morning. Morning, Living Way. It is so good to be with you again. It is so good to be back. I feel like I haven't been up here in ages. And in a way, it has been a long time. I've been away for the last three months with my family. And um, yeah, it was, uh, while it was good to be away, uh, we missed you guys dearly. I missed you dearly. My wife missed you dearly. My kids missed you dearly. In fact, I don't think there, there was a week when my kids did not say to us, when are we going back? When are we going back to living way? How many more weeks do we have to stay away? And it was a little annoying, <laughs> to be honest. But as a dad, I'm just so heartened to know how much they love church, and not just any church, this one, our family called Living Way. And you know, sabbaticals affords us the ability to kind of visit and worship with different faith communities. And we got to do that, and we visited a number of churches. I lost count. But every time we visited a church, we were reminded, Gene and I, we would have the same conversation in the car or over lunch, just how much we appreciate what we have here in Living Way. We don't have everything. We lack much. But I believe we have what truly matters, and that is a commitment to Christ and His glory, a commitment to His Word. And speaking of the Word, I'm just so thankful to God for Pastor Ray and for his faithfulness to God's word in my absence. This guy has had to carry extra in my absence, and he has carried it so well, leading and shepherding the flock of God with diligence and faithfulness and devotion. And not only Pastor Ray, our elder Newley, who's on a break, uh, Rev. We got some uh, fresh ink, by the way, this weekend. You, you couldn't see it because he was holding the mic. 
for the past with tattoos center. <laughs> but um, yeah, Rev and Stephen, our admin director, um, our elders in training, Uncle Chris, Brian, all of our servants, worship team, AV team, lunch ministry. I thank God for all of you. Can I? Can we just put our hands together for all these men and women that have served so faithfully? Thank you guys so much. Uh, this morning, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna share from my heart. Um, there's a lot that God allowed me to experience during my sabbatical, and there's a lot that He imparted to me. And I'm not going to get to share everything, but I'm going to share some. And uh, if you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I was telling Pastor Ray, of all the churches that we visited over the summer, not once did we hear from the pulpit what I just said. Open your Bibles. And that's become the trend now, where people come without even opening up the Word of God, whether it's in a physical book before you or on your phone. But I hope and I pray that we will never lose that, our commitment to the written Word of God. Second Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 3, and if you are able, will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God, this is your word. This is your holy word. And I pray, God, that you would now illumine our hearts and our minds to see what we in our flesh cannot see. God, you made it clear in your word that unless you enlighten the eyes of our hearts, we cannot see. So God, open the eyes of our hearts that we would see and know and experience you. God, we want you. We want you. Jesus, we want to see you high and lifted up. We want to see your name magnified here in this place. God, we also recognize that we have an enemy. And the enemy of our souls will do everything in his power to steal, kill, and destroy. But we thank you, God, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We thank you, God, that 
we as your people have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. We have divine power and we have the authority. And in the power and the name of Jesus, Satan, you have no place here. You have no place here. We cancel whatever assignment you have. And we command you, in the name and the power of Jesus, leave. Lord Jesus, reign. Reign over our hearts. Reign over our minds. God, reign over this time. And have your way. Spirit of God, we invite you. Come, Lord, speak. Speak now. For our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. My sabbatical began on the final day of our retreat uh, back in June. Alien. which was a huge blessing, amen? The retreat was so good. And when we headed down the mountain that Sunday afternoon, my family and I headed into our sabbatical. A much needed and a much welcome time of rest and renewal. And the first thing on our agenda was taking a trip to Korea. This is a trip that was months in the making. You know, as we look forward to our time away, we felt that a trip to Korea would be perfect for once because I hadn't been there in 23 years. The last time I was in Korea was in 1999 when my grandfather passed away, and a lot has changed in 23 years. Plus, my kids had never been there. And also, we knew we wouldn't have many more opportunities like this to travel with Jean's parents, especially her mom as she's getting older. So we said, let's do it. Let's go. Let's go to Korea. Who knows when we'll have this chance again? And everyone was super excited. And when the time came, we flew 13 hours to, to the place of my birth on what we saw as a trip of a lifetime. And it was great. It was awesome. In the beginning, at least. The first couple of days there, we got to meet Jean's side of the family, her auntie and her family, her cousin's family. And they took us around various places, and we just got to lay the land, got to take it all in. And um, I want to show you some photos. Um, that's a picture of the family, my wife and my kids. I don't remember exactly where that is, but that's Korea. Um, yeah, I'm blanking. That may be where we were staying, but I'm not sure. Next photo. Here we are eating some uh, Korean noodles, which were delicious and incredibly cheap. Food in Korea is so much cheaper than here. And what's amazing is that there's no tipping. You don't tip, so you save a lot of money. But we try to tip, and they're like, they don't know what to do. But uh, that's, that's uh, seating. Uh, next photo. Now, at one point, the boys and I, we went off on our own. And as we're walking by this building, we stopped by this photo because we felt that this model looked like Andrew Kim. Um, my boys were going, he looks like Uncle Andrew. And so I had him pose, and we took a picture in front of Uncle Andrew. Okay. 
Next photo, please. One in Rome, right? And of course, our girls got their beauty treatments. And uh, here's Addie uh, getting her first session of mole removal. Um, and so, yeah. And then uh, the next photo. Now, this photo is special, okay? Uh, one of the highlights in those first couple of days was we got to spend time with Rev and Cindy and Ava. And the reason why this photo is so special is because this is the first time she has allowed me to hold her. I've tried for months unsuccessfully to try to hold her, but she just would not. But after spending a few hours together, she finally warmed up and let me hold her. And there I am. And you can just see the joy on my face. Can you not? But that's a snapshot of our first couple of days in Korea, and it was wonderful. Now, on the third day, we took a trip out to a place called Minsog Village, which is a traditional folk village that depicted how people used to live in the olden days, in the late Joseon period. And it was great. We got to walk around, take in all that it had to offer. Well, around lunchtime, we noticed that Jackson wasn't his usual self. He was lethargic. His usual self is very energetic and running around everywhere, getting involved in everything, touching everything, but he was lethargic. He just sat and lay down wherever he could. And that's when I felt his forehead, and it was warm. Now, by the time we got to dinner, he had a full-blown fever, and he was completely listless in Gene's arms. At first, we thought he caught a bug. We thought he caught something. But that very night, he started complaining that his stomach was hurting, and he would grimace from the pain. Now, Jackson has a pretty high pain threshold, and we discovered just how high that threshold is. But he would get these stomach pains, and, his, and, and he would just go, Ow! Ow, ow, daddy, my tummy hurts. And he would just be crying from the pain. And he wouldn't be able to sleep because of the pain and because of the runs. He soon got diarrhea. And he would have to get up every 15, 20 minutes or so to go use the bathroom. And there were a few times when he didn't get up in time. And so he would soil the bed. And this went on for, for a few days. Again, we thought he caught something. We even talked to a pediatrician friend of ours here in the States who said it's probably a stomach bug. Just got to let it run its course. It'll pass, and he will be okay. But he wasn't okay. Far from it. He was progressively getting worse by the day. And it got so bad that at one point, he bit off a chunk of his lower lip. To distract himself from the pain he was in, he bit down on his lips so hard, so bad, that he literally chunk up, bit off a chunk of his flesh. I thought about showing the picture to you, but just out of respect for him, I chose not to. But there was this massive crater in his mouth, and that's when we said, okay, something is really wrong here. This, is, this can't just be some bug. To make a long story short, and I'm skipping over a lot that's happened, we took him to the ER. We took him to the hospital, and they ran some tests. And that's when we were first informed that they detected a problem with his gallbladder and that he may need surgery to remove it. 
And we were like, what? His gallbladder? What the heck is a gallbladder? And how, how did this happen? He may need surgery to remove it. It totally came out of left field for us. All this time, we thought it was just a bug. But it ended up being something far more serious. Next thing I know, Jackson and I and Jean's mom, who served as my interpreter because my Korean isn't very good, we were being ambulanced to Seoul National University Children's Hospital, which is the top children's hospital in the nation. And there they admit him and run their tests and confirm the findings. Jackson's gallbladder is in bad shape, really bad shape. It was severely inflamed and it needed to be removed. And that's when I reached out to Pastor Ray and let him know what was going on and asked for prayer from the church. And here are a couple of photos of Jackson in the ER. And that's the first hospital where they checked him out. The next one, and this is at Seoul National University. So Jackson's gallbladder needed to be removed, but there was another problem. They couldn't perform the surgery because it was too distended. And they were afraid that if they went in, if they cut open, it would cause it to burst, and that would be bad. And that's when Gene and I talked about cutting the trip short and heading back to the States so that we can take, take care of him back at home. But then we ran into another problem. They wouldn't discharge him. They wouldn't discharge Jackson because his fever was too high. They said there's no way he can be on an 11-hour flight in his condition. And so we had to wait. We had to wait for the fever to come down for us to be able to fly back home, and that's what we did. We waited. Now, by this point, Jackson hadn't eaten in five days. Nothing. Because if he ate something, that would cause a bladder to go to work. And that would make it worse. So they made him fast the entire time. And if that wasn't enough to make matters worse, they didn't even give him nutrients through the IV. All he got was liquids and antibiotics. Now, we had assumed that they were giving him nutrients, given that they were making him fast. But they didn't. Why? Because they thought we were cost-conscious which we were because we weren't sure if our insurance back home would cover all the hospital bills, which they ended up doing. We thank God for that. But if we had to pay for Jackson to get the nutrients that he needed, of course we would have paid. That's a no-brainer. So finally, on the fifth day of fasting, they started giving our son nutrients. Now, you can imagine what's going through our hearts and our minds as all of this is happening. I waited 23 years to come back here. This was our first trip overseas as a family, and one that we have been looking forward to for months. And outside of those first two and a half days, our 18-day trip consisted mostly of looking after our gravely ill son. And I sure as heck wasn't happy about it. In fact, I texted Pastor Ray one day when I was at the hospital. And this is what I wrote. Ray, I'm struggling with the fact that not one of my sabbaticals have been restful. 
it almost seems cruel. This is what I've come to expect now. Pray for my heart, Ray. Pray that I would trust in his sovereignty and goodness. Without exaggeration, it has been an absolute nightmare. And Pastor Ray listened, and he lamented with me and prayed for me. Now, I said that about my sabbaticals because I've had two sabbaticals prior to this one. This was my third sabbatical in 29 years in ministry. And the first two weren't restful either. The first one was filled with pain as Jean and I were experiencing the effects of our miscarriages. We had just had our second one. And some of the drama that came with trying to bring home a child through foster care. And the second one, too, was filled with pain as I was dealing with the death of my mom. I was in deep depression. And here I was in my third sabbatical and like clockwork. My rest, once again, is disrupted by pain. I remember one night I was texting with Jean. I took the night shift at the hospital and Jean took the day shift. And whoever wasn't with Jackson would be with the other three. But I was texting with her. And I was lamenting what the trip had become. Venting, really. And how it feels so crappy. It, it just sucks so bad that we came all this way to be stuck in a hospital. And she, too, listened and lamented with me and encouraged me to trust in the Lord. Well, after we text, not a minute later, I kid you not, like 15 seconds after we had texted, my next memory verse comes up on my phone from my fighter verses. And you know what it was? James 4, 13 through 16, where it says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. That was the next passage of scripture that I was to memorize. And I text Gene right back saying, you're not going to believe this. This is not a coincidence. God just sent me a word, a reminder that he is God and I am not. And James here is addressing the man with the plan, right? This guy has everything figured out. He has determined how life is going to go for him. He's going to go here for X amount of time. And this is what he's going to do when he's there. He's got everything figured out. And James attacks his misplaced confidence. Or better yet, the sin of presumption. The sin of presuming that life is going to go as you have determined. And he speaks of God's sovereignty over our lives. The truth that you and I, we are not in control of our lives. Listen, control is an illusion. We are not in control. The truth that everything we do, everything, everything.
everything we accomplish and attain in this life, every breath we breathe in, is ultimately under the sovereign will of God. And notice how he puts it. If the Lord wills, if God wills it, then we will live. Then we will do this and that. Understand that James here isn't giving us another cliche to add to our list. If God wills, then I'll see you on Thursday, Lord willing. No, he's prescribing for us an attitude, a mindset that we as God's people are to adopt in life. That in all our ways, in all of our planning, in all of our operating, we must remind ourselves that the only reason we're able to do the things that we do, the only reason we're sitting here and breathing is because God is letting us. Because of his grace. Because of his sovereign grace and his sovereign mercy. Jonathan Edwards used to say, I must remember this, that everything I enjoy today, which is better than hell, is strictly by the mercy and the upholding power of God. Do you believe that? Arios, do you believe that? This is a radically different way to think. This is a radically different way to live. And James says, when you know that, when you believe that, you won't be so arrogant as to think life is going to go as I have determined. No, in humility, you're going to bring your plans before God and say, Lord, not as I will, but as you will. Let your will be done. God, you lead me. You lead me according to your good and perfect will for my life. And this was a huge wake-up call for me. God spoke to me in that moment. He gave me a word and he gave me perspective and things started to change from that point. Now going back to Jackson, we were scheduled to fly back home on Saturday, July 9th. And the only way they let us go is if we, as if his fever came down and so we asked people to pray. And they did. You did. In fact, I know that our church set up Stop and Drop for Jackson where you were sent daily reminders to pray for Jackson. And I just want to take this opportunity to thank each and every one of you that I prayed. On behalf of Gene, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts because we are absolutely convinced that our son is here today because of you, because you prayed. God heard your prayers because on July 6th, two days before our return flight, his fever broke. Up until that point, up until that day, he was like a roller coaster. It would come down, the fever would come down, and it would just shoot back up. And it would just, just when we thought we had hope, it would just shoot back up. Finally, on July 6th, it broke. And we were given the green light to fly back home. And when July 9th rolled around, Jackson was discharged from the hospital. And by this point, he had fasted for a total of 11 days. 11 days. But we got on the plane, we flew back home. And when we landed at LAX, June and Julie, my sister and brother-in-law were waiting there for us. And June took me and Jackson straight to Kaiser Sunset ER, where they admitted Jackson, and the next morning, they operated and removed the gallbladder. The doctor showed us pictures afterwards, and it was crazy. That thing was literally dying. 
it was breaking apart. It was disintegrating. It was falling off. Now, the mystery is the crazy thing is we still don't know what caused it. But it was dying. The doctor told us that if they didn't operate him when he did, when they did, he could have died. It was life-threatening. But we thank God that he spared our son. But that in some was our trip to Korea. Now, I do want to say that outside of Jackson, we still got to do a lot there. Um, like I said, whoever wasn't with him would be with the other three. And uh, we take him to different places. Gene's cousin took him to different places. So Kaya and Piper and Addie, they still got to see and experience most of what we had planned to do there. So it wasn't all bad. In fact, this is where you see God's grace all over. What I had perceived as bad actually turned out to be a huge blessing. What do I mean? The first week back, I met with my counselor, my therapist, Jaslyn, and I shared with her all that had taken place in Korea and how another sabbatical was disrupted by suffering. And she said something to me that reframed everything for me. She said, James, what if the ultimate purpose of a sabbatical is not finding rest from difficulties, but finding rest from a deeper trust in Jesus? What if God is using everything that happened in Korea to invite you to a deeper trust and a greater intimacy with him? And I went, wow. And if that is the case, and it is, that's why we pastors are given sabbaticals. And that's why God calls all of us to Sabbath. And that that really is the case then what happened to me in Korea is a blessing. It really is. Why? Because it has led me to a deeper trust and a greater intimacy with Jesus. And guys, this is where I want to remind you of something critically important as it relates to your life in God. Please listen. Listen. It is a truth that suffering is an essential part of the Christian life. I repeat. Suffering is an essential part of the Christian life. If you are someone who is serious about your life in God, if you are, if you are someone who is serious about becoming more like Christ, suffering is necessary. Suffering is necessary. And this is important for us to know and be reminded of again and again. Because we here in America have a tendency to water down Scripture's call to suffer. We have lost here in the West a biblical theology of suffering. And living in this comfort-driven society, we do everything humanly possible to shield ourselves, insulate ourselves from it. And we may not say it, but a lot of us in the church think that the call of Christ is a call to comfort and ease. That health and wealth, not suffering and pain, are the signs of God's favor and blessing. And that's why most of us see suffering as a rude, uninvited guest, as an interruption, a disruption of God's good purposes for our lives. But I'm here to tell you, church, that that is not 
what the Bible teaches. That is not the gospel call. The call of the gospel, listen, the call of the gospel in many ways is a call to suffer. It really is. The Bible tells us, God's word tells us in no uncertain terms that it is a necessary path to the good and beautiful life. In fact, listen to what we're told in 1 Peter 2, 24. What credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is the greatest, gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Peter says when Jesus suffered by, by dying on the cross, it wasn't just to pay for our sins. It was also to set an example for you and me to follow that we would abound in hope, that we would abound in hope even in our pain, even in our suffering. Why? Because I know, I know, we know that our suffering isn't meaningless. It's not. It's not meaningless. No, in God's hands, my pain, your pain always has a redemptive purpose. Always. And Peter says, to this you have been called. Paul echoes a sentiment in Philippians 1.20 when he says, For it has been granted to you, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul here uses a language of gifts. He puts it in terms of a gift. You have been given as an act of God's grace. You have been given not just the faith to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And listen to what he says in Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you hear that? Church, do you hear what Paul is saying, far from being something that God spares us from, keeps us from, suffering is seen as the proof, the evidence, the guarantee that we are children of God, that we belong to him. Now why? Why is suffering necessary in the Christian life? I can list off a bunch of reasons, but I'm just going to give you one. It's the means by which we come to know Christ. It's the means by which we come to know God. Paul said in Philippians 3, 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have suffered a loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection the dead no longer having to try to earn God's acceptance because of what Jesus had done for him Paul says now all my attention all my focus 
All my energy, all my passion is now directed to one thing, knowing Christ. I just want to know him. I just want to know him. And to know here is not head knowledge. It's experiential knowledge, a closeness and intimacy with Christ that is gained through experience. And he says, I want to share in his sufferings. I want to share his sufferings that I, that I would be like him in his death. Why? Why in the world would Paul say that? He says that because he knows that it is in suffering that you truly come to know someone. It's in suffering that we truly come to know someone. Isn't that true? Think about the people in your life that you're closest to. I bet you wept together. I bet you shed tears together. I bet you shared in each other's pain. There's no way I would be as close to my wife today if all if our relationship just consists of of Disneyland experiences. No, it was suffering, it was pain that served as a blowtorch that fused our hearts together. And Paul says, if suffering is what's going to draw me closer to Christ, if that's what's going to lead to a greater intimacy with my Savior, then bring it. Ignatius said this. Guys, listen to what he writes. We should not fix our desire on health or sickness. Wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one. For everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our forever life in God. Our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want and choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. Oh, I love that. Our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want and choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. Oh, church, what if that was our prayer? What if that was our one choice, our one desire? I want whatever is going to deepen God's life in me. And the Bible says that suffering is a primary vehicle by which God's life is deepened in us. And that was certainly true for me. I'm closer to God today. I love Jesus more today as a result of everything that happened in Korea. In fact, here's a text that I wrote to Gene on one of my nights there. I feel so profoundly grateful to God right now for everything that's happened. I'm sure my feelings will come and go, but this is worth more than any sightseeing or event that I may be missing out on here. And my sabbatical consists of more than a trip to Korea. The second half of it was a lot more restful in the traditional sense of the word. We got to spend a lot of time with my sister's family. We got to go and spend a week up in Portland with some of our cherished friends, John and Kelly Kwok. And so we had a wonderful time of rest and renewal for which we give God thanks. Now, in the time that I have remaining, I want to shift gears, okay? I want to shift gears and share with you another major part of the work that God had done in my life during my sabbatical. And this is something that I've been very open about, and that is my battle with anxiety. This is something that I battled for most 
of my life. And so I made it a part of my mission, this sabbatical, to really get a handle on it and to really address this part of my life. And I want to share with you some of what God imparted to me, some of what I learned and gained over the summer. Because here's the deal. Anxiety is a bigger issue than we care to admit, especially for us men. As a matter of fact, just this week in my psychopathology class, you know what the topic was? Anxiety and anxiety disorder. Uh, and my professor was saying one of the reasons why women are twice as likely to report to struggling with anxiety is not because men don't experience it. It's because they don't admit it. It's perceived as weakness. And men, we men, don't want to appear weak. And yet a significant percentage of our population, both women and men, struggle with anxiety. In fact, Dr. Joseph Mercola said anxiety is the new depression. Recent research shows anxiety now 800% more prevalent than all forms of cancer. And it's only increasing. It's only getting worse. So if you don't struggle with this, someone you love does. And I got to read a couple of books over my break that ministered to me greatly. The first one is Finding Quiet by J.P. Moreland, my professor at Talbot, who has struggled with severe anxiety and depression for years, which I never would have guessed. I never would have guessed he struggled with this, and yet he talks about it in his book. The second one is Live No Lies by John Mark Homer, a pastor up in the Portland, Portland area who admits to struggling with anxiety. He says, I am wired for this. I'm wired for anxiety. Now, the book is not about anxiety. It's about lies, the lies that we believe from the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But it's an amazing book. In fact, it's one of the more important books that I believe a Christian can read. So please pick up that book, Live No Lies by John Mark Homer. Now, with that said, what is anxiety? What is it? It is the feeling of uneasiness, apprehension, or nervousness regarding a future threat or something with an uncertain outcome. It's a feeling of uneasiness, apprehension, or nervousness regarding a future threat or something with an uncertain outcome. And we've all experienced this, right? We all know what it's like to feel uneasy or unsettled, nervous when you find yourself in certain situations where the outcome is uncertain or you feel threatened. Now, a couple of things about anxiety. First, it always has a trigger. It always has a trigger. Now, we often don't know, even know what that trigger is, but it always has a trigger. Something sets it off. Second, anxiety is a surface feeling that points to a deeper issue. Your anxiety is a surface issue that points to something deeper that is most likely the real issue that you're dealing with, like fear, grief, hurt, loneliness, sadness, or shame. Now, a caveat. This is a complicated issue, okay? Very complicated. That's why it's never as simple as saying to someone who struggles with anxiety, just stop. Stop being so anxious. Come on, stop. Snap out of it. It's not that simple. See, our bodies and our souls are deeply integrated. So what happens in one inevitably affects what happens in the other. And there are other factors that go for a lot of people into their anxiety, like genetic predisposition. And I'm one of those people. 
It's in my blood. It's in my physiological makeup. My dad has been and always has been an anxious person. And his dad before him, who was a famous revivalist preacher in Korea. But it's in my blood. It's in my genes. It doesn't determine my destiny, but it plays a major factor, major role in my life. And there are other factors like childhood experiences, traumatic experiences that can lead to things like clinical anxiety, which is a medical condition. So we've got to be careful not to try to simplify it or lump all of it in the same bucket. Now, the anxiety that I'm talking about is the kind of anxiety that most of us feel. That feeling of uneasiness or worry that comes from the things that we have come to believe in our minds. The things that we have come to believe in our minds. And speaking of the mind, guys, listen to what God's word has to say about the centrality of our thought life. And its impact on our overall well-being, our emotional well-being. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. Paul says in Romans 12, To do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And Colossians 3, 2 says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Is it any wonder why then the enemy of our souls has made our minds his top target? Satan's most insidious attacks are made in the mind because he knows that this is where the battle is won or lost. And the way the enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy is, you ready? Through lies. Through lies. In fact, Jesus said he is the father of lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. The primary means by which the devil seeks to drive you and me into ruin is through lies. And what is a lie? A lie is an idea that is not congruent with reality. It is an idea that is not congruent with the reality of who God is and what God has said. And I know that Pastor Ray has been preaching on the notion of ideas, and it's crazy to me how we were studying the exact same thing at the same time entirely on our own, and that too is not a coincidence. But the way the devil attacks you and me is through ideas that do not align with reality. And when we come to believe those ideas as reality, as truth, that's when he has us right where he wants us. And we see this in the very first temptation that we not in the garden. When the devil came to Eve, he didn't come at her with a machine gun or a machete. He came at her with an idea. Or more specifically, a lie. You will not surely die. You're not going to die. God's just holding out on you, Eve. He knows that the day you eat of the tree, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like him. He's just holding out. He's just keeping you from from the good life, which is the exact same temptation he brings before you and me today. But Eve believes the lie. She believes it. And she bites, takes a bite out of the fruit, and the rest, as they say, is history. And that's the thing about ideas. They have power. Only when you believe them. They have power only when we believe them. Because we hear all kinds of ideas all the time, right? 
but they have zero effect on our lives unless, unless we put our trust in them as reality. And the problem is that for far too long, we in the church, we in the church have put our faith in ideas that are not true or at worst that are lies. This is why Dallas Willard said, ideas are a primary stronghold of evil in the human self and in society. We are at the mercy of our ideas. All that brings us to our passage here in 2 Corinthians 10. And in verse 3, Paul tells us that though we walk in the flesh, that is, though we live in the physical realm, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Why? Because we are not just fighting physical enemies. This is a spiritual battle that involves a spiritual foe. And that's why he says in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, what are these strongholds that Paul says you and I have the power to destroy? Well, some say they're demons. Demons or territorial spirits that God assigns to certain people and regions. But that is not what Paul is referring to here in this context. And we know that because in the very next verse, he tells us what these strongholds are that we are to destroy. Look at verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. In other words, the strongholds we are to destroy are ideas. Ideas and arguments and philosophies that stand against the truth of God that are antithetical to the truth. D.A. Carson says they are sinful thought patterns by which we live our lives or they live their lives in rebellion against God. Now here's a question, who's behind these ideas? Who inspires and energizes such anti-God arguments and thoughts and philosophies? It's the devil, of course. The prince of the power of the air who even now Ephesians 2 and 4 says is working in the sons of disobedience. And Paul says, you and I in Christ have the divine power to destroy them. But it's not just ideas that go against truth. It's also ideas that we have come to believe that keep us from walking in the truth. It's thought patterns or belief structures in our hearts and in our minds that do not correspond to reality that keep us in bondage that keep us enslaved to the devil and his schemes. I'm talking about the teenage girl who compares herself to all the images she sees on Instagram and comes to believe that she's ugly and unworthy of love. It's a woman who was raised by a perfectionistic mother who decades later still believes that if her life isn't perfect, if her home isn't perfect, if she herself isn't perfect, She's a failure. It's a woman who has had a sexual past and comes to believe that she's too dirty to be loved by a godly man, let alone by God himself. It's a man who was acknowledged by his father only when he did something well. And so he comes to believe, I'm only as good as my performance. These aren't hypothetical examples. These are real-life examples of stories, thousands of stories that people have trusted me with as their pastor. But it's not just other people's stories. 
It's my story. One of the things that God showed me in my time away on a personal retreat was a degree to which I believed the lie that I'm only as good as my performance. And consequently, as what others think of me. God showed me clearly just how much of a stronghold this was in my life. To the point that in many ways, man, I'm driven by this. In many ways, this is my central aim in life. So much of what I do is driven by my need for people to think well of me. For example, when it comes to school, and for those of you that don't know, I'm currently pursuing a marriage family therapy degree at Talbot. But when it comes to school, I was sharing this with Jean on one of, my, one of our walks. More than a desire to learn, I want the grade. You know why? So that when the handful of people come to my graduation, they'll see that little symbol next to my name. And they'll admire me for my accomplishment. When it comes to ministry, I'm not always driven by love. I am often driven by a sense of obligation, a desire to meet people's expectations of me so that they will think well of me, so that you will think well of me. And this is the primary source of my anxiety. The stress that I so often feel comes from the pressure that I put on myself to perform at a level that's going to garner people's admiration and approval, or the fear that what I do won't be good enough and I'm going to be judged. I'm going to be seen as unworthy or unimportant. And this, as you can imagine, has not led to a flourishing life. Far from it. It has led to a life filled with anxiety and stress, worry and hurry. And I repented before God. I repented before God. And I confessed to God that I have rejected the fountain of living water and dug broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And I sought his forgiveness. And I repent before you, my living way family. And I confess to you that I have not loved you well. That far too often I have been motivated by selfish motives, ulterior motives, and for that I am sorry. And I ask for your forgiveness. But I went to war. I went to war with the lies that I've come to believe. How? Verse 5. By taking every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, we destroy strongholds in our lives by taking every thought captive to Christ. The picture here, one, is where we're just taking down these fortresses and marching out the prisoners and bringing them into submission to Jesus. And the question becomes, how? How do we do this? I'm going to go through them rather quickly. For the sake of time, perhaps in another sermon, I'll unpack this more, but here's how. We do this first by monitoring our thoughts. First, by monitoring our thoughts. Here's why this is critically important. Our thought patterns become as natural as breathing. 
it's as habitual as brushing our teeth or eating. Most of the time, we don't even think about him, right? We get so used to thinking a certain way that we don't even notice that we're thinking about him. And it's like we go on autopilot. And so most of us, we live our lives on autopilot. And so the first thing we need to do is pay attention to the things that we allow to occupy our minds, the things that we repeatedly allow to fill our minds. What am I thinking? More importantly, what am I believing? What idea have I come to believe as reality? What lie have I come to believe as truth? Now, here's a little fun fact about our brains. This is neuroscience 101. This isn't psychobabble, okay? This is basic brain physiology. The more you think along a certain line, the more you form synaptic connections in the brain. The more you think a certain thought, the more you form grooves in the brain, literally. In other words, it creates a path. Sort of like if you walk across a field of grass over and over again in the same area, what happens? You create a path, right? The brain works the exact same way. It creates paths. It creates neural pathways. And the more you think something, what happens? The more that neural pathway is strengthened, the deeper those grooves become to where it eventually becomes our default way of thinking and feeling. And here's the truth about anxiety. Here's what you need to, for those of you that struggle with anxiety, here's what you got to know. Anxiety is largely a, a brain activity. It's a brain habit. It is a habit. It is a habit wired or grooved into the brain and nervous system. That, has, that is a result of years of believing lies. It is largely a brain habit grooved into the brain or in our nervous system as a result of years of believing lies expressed in distorted thinking or negative self-talk like, I'm such a loser. I never do things right. I'm unlovable. People are dangerous. The world is a scary place. And over the years, over years, your brain has formed these deep grooves that it automatically reverts to as its default position. So the trick is to learn to become aware of it instead of letting it just take over and to start disempowering it by calling it what it is, a habit triggered by a, grain, by a groove in the brain that has no connection to reality. Listen, the anxiety that you feel is just that, a feeling. It's an uncomfortable feeling, but it's a feeling nonetheless that has no connection to reality. So we disempower it by calling it what it is and no longer going on autopilot. Now, here's the good news. Here's what's so amazing about the way God has made our brains. It can change. It can be rewired. It doesn't have to be stuck in its ways. And this is called neuroplasticity. And it refers to the brain's ability to form brand new neural pathways. New grooves that trigger new thoughts and new emotions rather than negative ones like anxiety. And the question becomes how? How do we form new grooves in the brain? The first way is by refusing to ruminate on the thought or the message that has triggered your anxiety. Refuse to ruminate on the thought or the message that has triggered your anxiety. Here's why. This is, here's why this is so critical that you dismiss it. They discover that when you ruminate on it, 
even when it's for the purpose of telling yourself why that message isn't true, you actually deepen the grooves that trigger the message and makes it harder for you to get rid of it. So you have to dismiss it. You have to dismiss it by not dwelling on it, thinking on it, or ruminating on it. Now, as we all know, you can't think about nothing, right? So you give your mind something else to think about. And this is where scripture comes in. The single greatest way for you to cut new neural pathways in your brain, the single greatest way to combat the lies that you have come to believe is to replace it with God's truth. Guys, this is the bottom line. This is the bottom line. It all comes down to this. The only way you're going to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ so that your mind is renewed and your life transformed is by filling your mind, saturating it with the truth of God's word. And the key, as Comer says, is not just to think about Scripture, but to think Scripture. And this is so important. Why? Because what you repeatedly allow to enter your mind will inevitably shape your thoughts, your emotions, your desires, your everything. Comer says what we give our attention to will shape the person we become. So here's what I did over the summer that has had a huge impact on my mind and within my life. I memorized verses. I memorized a ton of verses, especially key ones that combat the lies that I've come to believe. Like Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Zephaniah 3, 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And I would memorize these verses, and whenever a lie entered my mind, whenever it entered my conscious awareness, I would bring to mind a corresponding verse and direct my attention to it. Now, if that same thought came back 10 seconds later, I would turn to that passage again and again and again as often as I needed to. Now, here's an admission. I'm going to be completely transparent. That's the easy part. That was the easy part for me. The harder part was believing it. Especially the verses that spoke of God's love for me. Verses that speak of the way God feels about me. And I just found myself going, you rejoice over me. You rejoice over me with gladness. 
God, you really exalt over me with loud singing? Like, you do that for me? You sing over me? Another verse that I quoted and repeated a million times was Jeremiah 31.3, where God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've loved you with an everlasting love, declares the Lord. You believe that verse, it'll change your life. I'm dead serious about this. You believe Jeremiah 31.3, it'll change your life. Because the verse speaks of the eternality of God's love. The eternality of God's love for you. The fact that there has never been a time in all of eternity when God did not love you. Guys, think about that. Try to wrap your head around that. There has never been a time in all eternity when God did not love you. For as long as God has been God, he has loved you. Now that verse counters the lie that our love for God is the cause of his love for us, right? And it tells us the truth that God's love for us is not the result of our commitment to him, but rather the cause of it. And because God's love for us had no beginning, listen, because God's love for you had no beginning, we can know, you can know for certain that God's love for you will never have an end. That's what God is saying in that verse. Again, the easy part for me is saying that, teaching that to you. The harder part for me is believing it. And so many times, oh, I just found myself identifying with the father of that demonized boy who said, Lord, I believe, but I hold my own belief. God, there's a part of me that believes that you love me like that, but there's a part of me, I don't know why. But I just have the hardest time believing that that is how you feel about me. And in those moments, I would just bring my heart before God and ask the Spirit to meet me in my unbelief, to meet me in my doubts, and to help me experience the truth of his love. And I just want to close with that today. I want to remind you of the eternality of God's love for you. Wherever you are, wherever you are, I just want to remind you that God has loved you with an everlasting love. He loves you with an everlasting love. Some of you are hurting. Some of you in this room are hurting bad. And you wonder where God is. Some of you are battling anxiety. And you wonder if you're ever going to feel different. If you're ever going to be free. Wherever you find yourself today, I want to remind you. That God has said to you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. He is working in your pain.
He is working in your suffering. He is working in your distress. He is working in your doubts. He is working in your waiting. So put your hope and your trust in him. And if you have a hard time doing that, do like me. Say, God, I'm having a hard time. I'm having a hard time, God, believing it. Help me. Help me in my unbelief. Let me just invite you now just to bow your heads and go before the Lord. And for the next couple of moments, will you just ponder that? Reflect on what God has said to you. These aren't my words. These are the words of the God of heaven. And he says to you today, I love you with an everlasting love. Let that truth wash over you. Let it wash over you wherever you find yourself right now. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're battling, whatever you're struggling with, let that truth wash over you. And ask the Spirit of God to help you to know it. That you would know it in your heart. That you would know it experientially. That you would know it in a way that you yourself can't know. But only if God helps you to know it. God to believe it. That your love for us is not the result of our love for you. But your love for us 
based on the fact, one simple fact, that we are in your son. And because we are in Christ, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us, God, from your love. Again, Lord, help us in our unbelief. We believe, and yet, God, at times we struggle to believe. Spirit of God, would you just help us? Father, would you just help us as a church to truly know the depth and the height and the width of your love? God, let it be. Father, would you just set us on a brand new course? God, please don't let this be just another Sunday. Father, I pray that you would set us on a brand new path by which we take captive every thought and make it obedient to you. And that we would allow your truth, your word, to be that which we believe and trust and put our faith in. So that we become a people who really resemble Christ. So God, would you bless your people? I pray, God, that you would bless those who are hurting. who are suffering. God, would you remind them even now that their pain is not meaningless. But you're doing something. You're working. You're working. God, draw them closer to you. God, would you invite them into a deeper walk with you. That they would trust you more. That they would know you more, God. That they would walk more intimately with the Savior as a result. God, take us deeper. And Father, let that be the prayer of our hearts. That I want, I want, whatever is going to deepen your life in me. Father, please, let that be the prayer of our hearts. Let that be the prayer of our hearts. For our joy in your goodness.